Morning. Happy Father's Day. I don't think, have we said that yet? No. no, Happy Father's Day. I'm glad you could be here this morning to celebrate our Heavenly Father's Day. Uh, somebody said to me uh, a while ago, and it has always stuck with me, every day is Father's Day, our Heavenly Father's Day. And uh, I think that just helps us gear our minds to worshiping Him and being thankful for Him each and every day. Uh, but not to, not to minimize you fathers out there and all that you do for your families. I'm sure they are grateful for you, and, and uh, today's just a day to celebrate that, so I hope you have a great time. I, I feel barbecues on the horizon. I feel, I feel rafting, uh, maybe a hunting trip. Uh, any of those things sound good? Barbecue, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've been, when I have the opportunity to preach, it's always a question of what am I going to preach on? Because unlike Thomas, I don't have the opportunity to build a continual context uh, week to week. I'm not preaching through a book the way he is. And so the question always comes up, what do I preach on? And sometimes I just feel the climate that we're in um, warrants a certain type of message. Uh, and in particular, the climate we are in today, the world has lost its mind. People have gone crazy. Um, they are, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It almost seems like something new comes up every day, and we don't even really know what to focus on anymore. You know, first it was the COVID. Uh, now it's the rioting and the social injustice and, and all of that coming up. Um, you know, the stock market. Uh, it's just, it's one thing after another. And and it almost seems like I, I just can't get my arms around it all. One thing I do know, the, the COVID has been the hardest because it has, has forced us to separate from one another. It has forced a division in the church physically. Uh, by proximity, we're not allowed to be close together or, or haven't been thus far. And we're just coming out of that, but it's been difficult. I have found myself really missing you guys. And uh, you probably don't miss me very much, but I miss you. And, uh, you know, being isolated from one another, being separated is difficult. And so I feel that that climate uh, really kind of spoke to me and led me to a passage that has been longstanding, one of my favorites, uh, and that is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, you're, it's familiar territory. Everybody is familiar with this passage. But my hope is to take what is considered one of the most theological passages in the New Testament and to really kind of bring it down to where it it ministers to you in a personal way. I think the scriptures uh, should move our wills as we hear it. Um, as, as the word of God is preached, it should change us, right? We should, we should come here one way and, and we should leave here differently. Uh, the word of God should, should minister to our souls in such a way that it sanctifies us. It causes us to think differently about the world in which we find ourselves. 
And Philippians 2, in my mind, is one of those passages that is uh, revolutionary for your thinking. If you haven't thought about it, uh, it should change you at your very core uh, because we read about the, the incarnation of Christ, uh, we read about his humiliation, we read about his glorification, and, and all of this uh, should change how we view ourselves and how we relate to one another. And so uh, let me read for you Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And in fact, by the way, when I was being ordained about 11 years ago, uh, I had to memorize a passage of 15 verses, and Philippians 2, 1 through 15 is what I chose because it was my favorite passage. It still is to this day. So thank you for the opportunity of having me here and letting me preach through it, and I, I hope it'll minister to your souls. So Philippians 2, 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I'm going to stop right there because uh, I want to focus on the first eight verses there. Let me give you a little backdrop about what's going on here in the book of Philippians. Uh, the church at Philippi, this is about 10 years after the church was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. So it's been a while. Uh, the church has grown a little bit, but it was the first town, you'll remember, that he planted when he crossed over into Europe. Prior to that, he had only been in, in Asia, over in the area of Turkey, but he crossed over into Europe, and, and Greece is the first country you come to. Back then it was called Macedon, Macedonia. Uh, and the Apostle Paul, the first church that he planted there was the church at Philippi. Just a small town, but it was a Roman town in the middle of Greece. It was a, a Roman outpost, sort of a retirement community for, for retired Roman military. Um, and, and this is the town where you'll remember the Apostle Paul um, evangelized the woman who sold purple fabric. You'll remember that story in the book of Acts. And there was a girl that uh, was, she says she had the spirit of Python, uh, literally, that she was um, a sorceress. 
that was giving out prophecies and the people were making money off of her. This is the town that Paul evangelized and he uh, started the church there in Philippi. So it's 10 years later and Paul finds himself now under house arrest. And uh, he's, he's over in Rome, he's, he's under house arrest and, and the church of Philippi knows he's there and they care about him and they love him to pieces so they send him a very large monetary gift. They, they sort of collect all their worldly gatherings and they send it on their way with who was probably their pastor, uh, the man known as Epaphroditus. And on his way there, or perhaps after he arrived there, Epaphroditus fell ill. Uh, he got gravely ill to the point where he almost died. Um, and so he stayed with Paul, he was healed, and Paul sent him back to Philippi with this letter. Paul's concern was for the church of Philippi. This is not a rebuke so much as it is an exhortation. But you'll notice over in chapter 4 that because Paul is in prison, he's the one that planted the church, Probably their pastor is over there. He's nearly died. They've sent all their worldly possessions over there, and things are looking a little scary. They're this Roman outpost in the middle of a Greek uh, culture. They're Christians in the middle of a world that's hostile to them. And, and inside the church, there's a couple of ladies. Uh, if you look over in 4.2, Euodia and Syntyche, who are not getting along. And they're causing quarreling and dissension within the ranks. And because of that, you could feel the tension levels rising in Philippi. You can feel the church's anxiousness. Uh, Thus, over in chapter 4, Paul's exhortation to, to be anxious for nothing, right? Why is that there? Because they were anxious. Uh, They were fretting. They were scared. It was an uncertain time, uh, much the way we find ourselves today. We're living in uncertain times. Things are weird. People are crazy. Uh, And so how do we live in this world and still maintain the unity of the church uh, in the midst of, of forces that would seek to tear us apart at every corner and divide us? That's, that's the question we want to answer today. And that's what I think Paul was addressing here. How do we, how do we stick together uh, in a world that is increasingly hostile toward us? Uh, when all the circumstances in the world want to seem to tear us apart. So Paul's encouragement to them it comes, uh, the first imperative in the book is over in chapter 1. An imperative is just a command. Uh, over in 127, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do you see that? Conduct yourselves. The word conduct there is politumai. Uh, it's where we get the word politics from. Uh, and he's saying to them, act like citizens. And he wasn't talking about Roman citizenship. That was something they actually prided themselves on, was being Roman citizens. But he's saying, think of yourselves more like heavenly citizens in the midst of the world. 
And this is what he's going to encourage them to. He says, I, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's the encouragement that's going to carry through this passage that we're looking at this morning. One mind, one spirit, standing firm in the faith. And so um, it's not much of a stretch to see how this might apply to us in our day and age. Unity is fragile. It always has been. Uh, the church can be divided very easily. It's always at risk from the outside and from within. And so we need to work hard, I'll say, at maintaining the unity of God's church. I know, I know unity exists because we're indwelled by one spirit, and God has created the unity, but we are charged in the New Testament to preserve the unity that God has established in the bond of peace. So, this morning we're going to see two ways to achieve true unity in the church. And I say true unity because there's a lot of superficial ways that people try to develop unity in our culture. Uh, we're going to see two ways to achieve true unity in the church so that we might be witnesses to a world that is watching very closely. And the first way to achieve true unity, we must live differently. We must live differently. You see that in verses 1 through 4. Now, think with me on the majority of your New Testament. We talked about Ephesians this morning. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, he gives you three chapters of solid doctrine, right? And then chapters 4 through 6, he gives you the application of that doctrine. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul sort of flips that on his head. Um, and what he does is he takes the application and gives it to the church first. And then he's going to illustrate it with the doctrine that typifies it to the extreme. In other words, he's going to tell them they, they need to be united, they need to be together, they need to be of one mind, they need to encourage one another, love one another, have fellowship in the Spirit. And the reason for all that is because of Christ. And in particular, they need to be humble because of Christ's humility. And, and this is... This is what the message is about this morning, is humility. It's, it's about maintaining the unity of the church through humility. That's what the book of Philippians is all about. It's about humility. And the greatest example of humility that we could possibly think of is Christ. So, application first. And then we'll illustrate it with the doctrine, okay? Now, three ways we must live differently than the world. The first one is we must adopt the same attitude. We need to adopt the same attitude. Verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now you see a pattern in there, obviously. It's, it's not hard. When you're looking at a text like this, you look for patterns. Um, look at the word, though, that it starts out with, therefore. Do you see the therefore? Anytime you see the word therefore, you want to ask, what's it there for? Very good. So that means that this is a conclusion that harkens back to what I said in verse 127. Act like citizens, how? By being of the same mind, one spirit, right? It harkens back to that. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together. And there are four statements in this verse that provide the attitudes or the motives for doing that. And and if we're not doing them now as a church, then we ought to be doing them forthwith. I've always wanted to say that word. So forthwith, uh, we are to be doing these things. They're all first-class conditional statements. And what do I mean by that? Well, first-class condition means they're assumed to be true. So the people that he's talking to, he's not saying, do this per se. He's saying, you already know this, and this is already true of you. So when he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, you could almost add the phrase, and there is, at the end. Okay, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, and the word encouragement is paraclesis, uh, it's that word uh, that we know about the Holy Spirit where he's called another counselor, uh, parakaleo, he's uh, called alongside, he is, um, he is the helper, he's the comforter. So this idea of the Greek word here is to come alongside, to help, to counsel, to exhort, And if there's any benefit of being in Christ, this is it. It is this idea of encouragement, of being in union with Christ. And it's a very big benefit, would you not say? The second phrase, he says, if there's any consolation of love, and there is... Uh, The word here, paramuthion, is typically translated comfort. Um, And there's tremendous comfort that comes through sacrificial love for one another in the church. I am comforted by you all, and you are comforted by me. Together we comfort one another, and that is something that the world doesn't understand. It's the church. It's the church, the one that's filled with the Spirit of God. We can comfort one another in a way that the world never could. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, say it with me, and there is. Uh, The word fellowship, very familiar word, koinonia. If there is any koinonia in the Spirit, uh, the word fellowship, a better word here might be participation. When we go through the book of Acts, what you see is that the church is formed in Acts 2 and people are added to the church. And so as they're added to the church, they jointly participate in the Spirit. They're baptized into the Spirit. 
You see those, and by the way, when you go through the book of Acts, anytime you see tongues being spoken, it's because a new people group has been added to the church, and the evidence that they've been added is the tongues being spoken. Okay? So you have have the Jews in Acts 2, you have the half-Jews, half-Gentiles in Acts 8, you have the Gentiles in Acts 10, and you have the Old Testament believers, the Old Testament, Old Covenant believers under John, Acts 19. After that, there's nobody else, so there's no more reason for tongues. Joint participation in the Spirit. Is that a benefit? I, I would say so. That's a benefit of being in the church. And then this last phrase... I'm moving quick because there's a lot of ground to cover, so, so I can't go into as much depth as I would like to, so, so pardon me for that, but you'll, you'll get the point as we move through. If there's any affection and compassion, this one breaks the pattern a little bit, doesn't it? There's, there's two nouns there. Uh, so if there's any affection and compassion... And there is. Uh, it's an interesting uh, couple of words here. The, the first word is splankna. <laughs> I always like that word. Uh, but what it, what it is is bowels. Literally bowels. So if there's any bowels and mercies, literally. Uh, and what does he mean? Well, if there's any... He's talking about the inward man here. If there's any affection and compassion for one another... And there is, then the next phrase is the command that he's going to base it on. He's going to say, then fill full my joy, make my joy complete. These are the products of the other three, though. These um, bowels and mercies, affection and compassion, if you will. Uh, These are the product of the other three. So if there's encouragement in Christ, if there's consolation of love, if there's fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, then there is affection and compassion as a byproduct. Now, I can't help but think as I look at this, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this strikes me as if you were to take the second phrase and you were to say, consolation of the love of God, then what would you have here? You would have encouragement in Christ, consolation of the love of God, and fellowship of the Spirit. What do you have? You have the Trinity, right? You have the Trinity. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that's probably what Paul is after here. So we need to adopt these attitudes, and I say if we don't have them already, we ought to get them forthwith. We ought to be characterized as a church by these attitudes. If we have the Spirit, it should be evident. It should be plainly evident. So the first way we live differently in this world is by adopting the same attitudes. The second way is we need to embrace the same thinking. Verse 2, 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. And as I said, this is the main verb that drives the whole thing. This is the Apostle Paul writing to them, and he's saying, make my joy complete by doing these things. That's the verb. It literally says, fill full my joy by embracing the same thinking. Now, a literal read of this verse, I think, is important so that you see the pattern. Because, again, you're looking for patterns in order to understand the text a little bit better. So he says, fulfill my joy in order that, and here it is, listen up, the same thing you might think, the same love having, same sold, literally sum sukoi, same sold, the one thing thinking. What do you see in there? What's the pattern? It's unity, yeah. It's, it's one, right? It's one. It's the same. Everybody thinking the same thing, loving the same way, being same-souled, united in soul, and one thing thinking. He emphasizes that again at the end. Now, if this isn't an exhortation to unity, then I don't know what is. And, and since the Philippian church seemed to be falling apart at the seams, the reminder here is to embrace the same thinking. Paul's concerned for them. If they don't, if they don't get on the same page, uh, then they will become sitting ducks vulnerable to division from the outside and from within. As I said, it's not a rebuke, but it's a strong exhortation. Uh, these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, their, their quarreling was tearing the place apart. Everybody's already anxious, and they're just not making things any better. He knew they were concerned about Epaphroditus. He knew they were concerned about him. And so everybody needs to think the same thing. And, and so... Interestingly, the same thing he wants them to think about is not the circumstances, but their theology. Their theology, what he's going to remind them of is, is Christ's humility in the midst of all these goings-on. Now, Ephesians 4, 1 to 5, it's a, it's a popular passage. You're probably familiar with it. But again, it's this call to preserve the unity of the body of Christ in the bond of peace. And then he goes through this list. And he says, there is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You think that's not a call for unity? <laughs> How many, how many gospels are there? There's just one, right? So why are there multitudes of denominations out there? Why is there so much different thinking? Why even among Protestants? I mean, I have to ask you this. Why is it so difficult for us to think the same thing? Why do we have such a problem believing the same things? 
Are we afraid of being indoctrinated? Are we afraid that we're going to be in some kind of cult? I mean, really, this is not a new problem for the church. And often it's not a question of doctrine. I mean, people gripe more than they anything because they just don't like the way things are being done. They don't like the direction of the church. Right? They don't like women's ministries. We don't have enough tea parties. We don't like children's ministries. We don't like the music they're singing. We don't like the games they're playing. We don't like what they're being taught. We don't like the way our evangelism is being done. We don't think we should do it this way. We think we should do it this way. We're just not on the same page. We're not a good fit here. We just, we just sort of have different priorities. We're going in different directions. How many times do we hear these things? Beloved, I think these things must just grieve the Lord to no end. When we, when we look at the scriptures, the calls for unity are in every book. I think what I think it's just a smokescreen, honestly. I think what's in people's heart is more something like this. I want to go somewhere where I can do what I want, when I want. I don't want to submit to the leadership. Uh, maybe I don't trust the leadership here. I don't, I don't like the direction they're going, and I don't trust them. Uh, maybe I'm hurt before, and I don't want to be hurt again. And, and i got to tell you, it just... It takes a lot of humility. The answer, again, is humility. It takes a lot of humility to stay somewhere and work through the differences and cultivate unity rather than just walk away. It's hard. It's hard to submit to leaders. But guess what? What are Christians characterized by? What are they supposed to be characterized by? Humility and submission. Whatever their reason for dividing, quarreling, leaving, I I think in reality maybe folks just have never adopted the same attitudes. They have not embraced the same thinking. For whatever reason... That's what it boils down to. We need to adopt the same attitudes. We need to embrace the same thinking. We need to display, third, the same affections. We need to display the same affections, verses 3 to 4. And this, you know, this is a powerful verse for counseling. If you are talking to a troubled marriage, if you are dealing with people who want to divide or split, this is, a, this is a powerful verse here, these couple of verses, I should say. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There's two contrasts here in the text. 
Two times he uses the word Allah in Greek, which is a very strong contrast. Uh, and the literal read, first contrast, he says, nothing according to strife or conceit. Very strong. None even put a verb in there. Very strong. Nothing according to strife or conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another to be better than himself. Now I know we love each other here, and I know you love each other and you serve one another, but let me ask you a question. In your heart of hearts, do you look at the other person? Look at the person sitting next to you in the pew. Do you look at them and consider them to be better than you? Honestly. But that's what Paul is calling us to. He's saying, you're to look at this person not like, you know, they're, they're the same as you, but treat them better than yourself. This is a silly illustration, but it proves my point. When you go to Krispy Kreme and you buy a box of donuts and they mix them and they put your favorite donut in there, do you grab it out of there first before you give the rest of the donuts to other people? Amen. Because it's not a spiritual issue, right? You understand what I'm saying, right? Do you consider other people before yourself? Would you give somebody else your favorite donut or would you snatch it out of there before they had a chance to get it? Because it's what you want. And it's a simple little thing, but it's a test of our heart motives. Nothing according to strife or conceit. What's going on in the church right now? Strife and conceit. <laughs> and they're in direct contrast with what he wants for the church, which is affection and compassion. You notice the contrast there. It's in direct contrast. So here it is. We're not supposed to do anything from strife, conflict, or vanity. But we're to regard others as better than ourselves in the church. And as I said, this is not love your neighbor as yourself here. This is better than yourself. Is that living differently? You better believe it is. What does the world do? Me first. Me, 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 me. Right? Self-love. Self-importance. I'll take all I can get in this world. Forget about you. That is living differently. And what about the second contrast in the text there? Again, no verb. He just starts out with not very powerful, not to the own self, each one looking out for, but here's the contrast, also to the other, each one of you, 
You're not just looking out for number one, you're looking out for them too. You're, you're considering other people. Now what about modern psychology tells us, hey, I, I need to love myself before I can love other people. What do you think of that? That's a pile of scubalon, folks. <laughs> it's a, you know that scene in Jurassic Park where he comes up to that big pile, right? The big pile of triceratops dung. That's what that is. That's a big pile of dung. You don't need to love yourself more to love other people. The, the problem is we already love ourselves too much. We need to love ourselves less so that we can consider others as more important. This is what Paul's calling the Philippians and us to this morning. Remember, this is, this is the answer to how we cultivate unity in the church. Let me ask you a question. How does that affect your comfort zones this morning? Is that, a, is that a personal bubble invasion? Listen to what this one writer said. His name is William Law. He's, he's an old Puritan. If our life is not a course of humility, self-denial, renunciation of the world, poverty of spirit, and heavenly affection, we do not live the lives of Christians. Ouch. Right? That hurts. That hurts. C.S. Lewis, if you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Christianity is not about our comfort. It's about considering others to be more important than ourselves. And we're going to see now the reason why. Because as I said, the Apostle Paul is going to illustrate it with Christ. So to achieve, achieve, <laughs> to achieve true unity in the church, we must live differently. Secondly, to achieve true unity in the church, we must love radically. We must love radically. As I said, what doctrine did Paul use to illustrate these exhortations that we've just been given? He used the greatest example of humility he could possibly think of, Christ. It's amazing. His incarnation, his humiliation, his crucifixion, and ultimately his glorification. There's two ways that we are to love radically based upon the example of Christ here in the text. Verses 5 to 7, by sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. And if that hasn't been made plain enough, then listen to this. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude is that? Well, even though he existed, 
in the form of God, Greek morphe, he existed in the form of God, he was equal with God, but he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. He, he set it aside and he humbled himself, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, literally, and being made in the likeness of men. What did Christ do? And what are you being called to do? He's saying, have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ. And attitude is the same word that occurs throughout this section. It's the word mind. And so Paul is telling them to have the mind of Christ. And it's, it's prevalent throughout this book. Have the mind or the attitude of Christ in order to preserve the unity of this church. And the mind or the attitude of Christ is humility. It's humility. Notice, he's not talking about Christ when he was here on earth. What's the example he uses? The pre-incarnate Christ. The Christ who was in glory. The Christ who had all the rights and privileges of deity. Right? He was there with God. He was in perfect fellowship with God. And what did he do? He humbled himself in mind first. And then what did he do? He endured the birth. He lived as a child. I, I read some amazing quotes on this. You know, think about it. The, the Lord who commands the waves in the oceans found himself floating in a woman's womb. The one who knows the stars and numbers them is now an infant who can't even count his own toes. Think of the humiliation of, of the infinite God coming to earth as a child and being completely dependent and knowing beforehand what it was going to be like and humbling his mind to assume that posture. And not just that, but then to grow up and to allow himself, the sinless one, to be murdered on behalf of sinners. To take all of their sin on himself and to allow himself to be murdered. And not just murder. How was he killed? The worst possible way you could imagine on a Roman cross. Like a common criminal. Yeah, this is, this is big stuff. The pre-incarnate Christ humbled himself in mind, the text says. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we can talk theology all day long about the kenotic theories. Uh, kenotic kenosis comes from the word emptying. What did it mean that he emptied himself? Well, th just looking at the text, it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It means that he humbled himself. He assumed 
the posture of a servant. He emptied himself of his rights to use his deity, his prerogatives of deity, the exercise of his deity. He didn't divest himself of his deity, just the prerogatives to use it. So when he came to earth, he lived as a man, the perfect spirit-controlled man. He lived in the power of the spirit who controlled and guided him. Was he still God? Yes, but 100% man too. But he, the, the point of this text is this. He humbled himself in mind first. Now, this was, this was like a jingle in the original language. Uh, how many of you like Barry Manilow? Uh, Barry Manilow became famous for writing jingles on TV, right? And so this is like a jingle. This is like a Barry Manilow jingle. I know this is sacrilegious to compare the Apostle Paul to Barry Manilow, but that's what I'm doing. The words existing and something to be grasped are very similar sounding. They rhyme. So Jesus, who in the form of God existing, huparkon, not something to be grasped, huparmon, he regarded, that is, the to be equal to God. That's how it, that's how it originally reads. And you're like, well, how did they get that translation? <laughs> But that's what it says. Huparkon and Hupargmon, uh, they sound similar. It's meant to be a jingle, which tells me this was probably an early doctrinal confession of the church. They, they had something like this so that it was easy to remember that Jesus was in the form of God. He existed, but he did not regard equality with God in mind, but he humbled himself. And here's part two. Believers are supposed to have that same attitude. That same mind. Remember, going back to 127, to be of the same mind, right? Now, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son. Now, the word so there does not mean God loved us. It's not qualitative. It's not so much. It's better to understand it as in this way. God loved the world in this way that he did what? He gave. He gave an action. Right? He didn't just say he loved us. He gave his son. Back to our point. How do we love radically? By sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. How did God love us radically? How did Christ love us radically? He gave up everything for others. And he did it while we were perfect. 
while we were the best people we could possibly be, while we had achieved perfect holiness, right? No. How did he come to us? While we were yet sinners. The God of heaven gave up everything for us when we didn't deserve it at all. If that doesn't change you, I don't know what will. That is a powerful, powerful truth. And let me ask you a question. If you could do something to make God love you more, then did Christ need to die for you? It'd be completely unnecessary, wouldn't it? If you could have done something to earn favor with God then Christ didn't need to die. And that is the question that we ask unbelievers. How do you think a person is made right with God? Do you think you're going to be good enough? Then why did Christ need to die? Listen, in in order to grow in true unity, and I'm saying the word true here, there's a lot of superficial unity that happens in churches today. We need to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. The way Christ did for us while we were in sin. Secondly, by serving others instead of ourselves, verse 8, and we'll finish with this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, once the decision was made in his mind, Jesus became a man to serve us. And this wasn't just humbling. This wasn't just humility. This was humiliation. To die the death that he died as a common criminal was humiliating. Remember, this this wasn't just a man. This was the God-man. And that's the significance of it. It wasn't just that somebody died in your place. The significance is that a God-man died in your place. As your substitute, he died on that cross the death that you deserved, absorbing the wrath of God that was due you. And what do you get? You get freedom. You get release. You get perfect righteousness. You get everything. He got nothing. The text is emphatic, by the way. I mean, it says he became obedient to the point of death. He allowed himself to be murdered, but it's emphatic. Even death on a cross. People who died on crosses were considered to be cursed of God. It was a horrible 
tragic way to die. Slow suffocation. Beating to a pulp before you're even nailed to the cross. Jesus wasn't the only guy who ever died on a cross, by the way. You realize that, don't you? It wasn't just those three guys that one day. There were people nailed to crosses all over the Roman Empire. It was a common criminal's death. Such a, such a common, horrible way to die for one so undeserving. Now remember the application. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Look out for the interests of others, not your own. Isn't that what Christ did? Isn't that what he did for us? He took everything, all of our filth, all of our sin, everything on himself, and we got life. That's looking out for the interests of others, not his own. That's considering others as more important than himself. Paul is illustrating the application with the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ. And listen to me. If your struggle is pride and all of its ugly manifestations, the key that is going to unlock your freedom to the enslavement of that sin is humility. Humility. We don't need to love ourselves more. We need to humble ourselves. Stuart Scott, famous counselor, said, just as pride is the root of every evil, humility is the root of every virtue. You know, when you sit around in a group and you ask people, so what sins are you struggling with? What's the one everybody says? Pride. And that's not specific enough, by the way. (laughs) Pride is behind every sin. And, And the key to unlocking that is humility. You want to reverse the course of pride in your life, adopt an attitude of humility. Are you a servant? Do you look for ways to serve others? If we want to build up the unity of this fellowship, we need to love each other radically. John says, uh, Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian from the U.S. here, It's not by telling people about ourselves that we demonstrate our Christianity. Words are cheap. It is by costly, self-denying Christian practice that we show the reality of our faith. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? He gave himself up for her. Husbands, how are you supposed to love your wives? By ruling over them? 
No. By giving yourself up for them. Making their life a better place by serving them. Jesus told his followers, love one another as I have loved you. How did he love you? It wasn't just words, it was actions. And it started up here, beloved. It started up here. He humbled himself in mind, and then he assumed the posture of a servant. We need to find ways to serve others instead of ourselves. We need to live differently. We need to love radically. Unity that is developed by novelties and superficialities, it just doesn't last. But uni- unity that is cultivated through, through living for Christ and loving like Christ, that lasts bef- because it finds its origins in Christ's love for us. It's following his example. And only as we humble our hearts before God and one another are we going to find lasting unity and peace in a world that defaults to chaos and strife. And may God help us to preserve the unity of the church that he has purchased with the very blood of his son. Let's pray.